This is Cody Robbins from Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey, and you're listening to Joby and Shed with the Foshi Creek Podcast. Battle Foshi Creek, that's where we all would meet. Skipping rocks, skipping school. Daddy taught us a golden rule with an old camp home. A shady spot to sit. We learned everything we knew down on Foshi Creek. Yeah, we learned everything we knew. Cause we lived down on Foshi You're listening to the Foshi Creek Podcast. I'm Joby Holland. With me is Mr. Shed Whitaker of Mossy Oak. Today's episode, we have Mr. Cody Robbins of Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey. Cody, a pleasure to have you with us today. So thanks for joining us. I'm so excited to be here, Joby. Uh, Mossy Oak has been a big part of our family and our team and our success. And I'm excited to be here and share some hunting stories and, and share some just good BSing with you guys. Cody, give us a little background of who Cody Robbins is and uh, you can go back as far as you want to go. Well, um, I was 19 years old and I wanted to make a living in the hunting industry and it just so happens with a lot of luck, I bumped into Jim Shockey and Jim Shockey was just getting the idea to start his own hunting TV show and this was back in about 2000, 2001 and a lot of doors opened at the right time. Uh, Jim offered me a job to be his cameraman editor and I took the opportunity. I spent seven years with Jim. And then in 2008, I started my own television show called Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey. I also met Kelsey Claypool, who is now my wife, but that was my girlfriend for about four years, and then married her in 2012. And her and I have continued on with the show as as a couple's hunting TV show on Outdoor Channel for the last 11 or 12 years now. And we really are living the dream. We get to hunt every single day in the off season. We're doing the marketing and the, the, the editing and there's, it's a grind at that time of year, but we're still following our dreams and, and living, living out, you know, what our passions are. And we're really, really lucky people. You know, I read uh, something that you had said, I guess your father-in-law, Ar- Arlie Claypool, is that correct? That, yes, uh, that you had mentioned to him at some point that uh, you would sure like to date one of his daughters. And he said, Hey, they're all dating someone and you aren't in their league. <laughs> so <laughs> That's exactly what he said. <laughs> he, uh, he had four daughters all beautiful girls, and I was just teasing him. He was a good hunting buddy of mine, and I knew that all of his daughters were babes. And I just kept saying, gee, sure be nice. You know, I'm trying to get you a big buck. It'd be nice if you got me a date with one of your daughters. And he made it very clear that they were all taken and that none of them would ever give me a chance anyway. But it turned out that one of them became available a year or two down the road, and I jumped on the opportunity. So <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy yeah. Enjoying reading that. He sounded like a character in some of the things, and uh, that he had said to you. So now he's your father-in-law. Yes, sir. Hey, you, you yep. mentioned, you know, starting at 19 and Shed and Head uh, Jake had been on uh, one of our episodes kind of talking about getting in the hunting industry. What do you, what do you tell somebody that a young person, because you had to make a lot of sacrifices, I'm sure, to get where you are today. It didn't happen overnight. And what, what advice would you give a young person that, you know, I want to be in the hunt, hunting industry? It's, uh, I think back, when I was getting started, there really was no definite plan. There was no mold that you wanted to fall into. All I knew was 
I loved hunting. It was my passion. I wanted to be out there and I wanted to find a way to do that every single day of my life. And you just kind of have to find your own way. But the one thing that you have to stick to is your drive. You can't give up. If, if you would like to be a cameraman, if you wanted to apply for, you know, driven with Pat Nicole and be one of their cameramen, if you wanted to be one of my cameramen, or if, if you wanted to open that first door to get into the hunting industry, there's a lot of sacrifices that come with it, like you said, and there's going to be a lot of hard days. There's going to be a lot of people saying, no, if you want to start a TV show, you have to sign on sponsors. And I will tell you when I was starting my show, you're going to talk to 50 people that could potentially be your sponsor that are going to say no to you before you ever get a yes. So if you're following your dreams and if you're really going for something that would be a lot of people's dreams, it's going to be tough, but you just have to keep your head down and keep working at it. And you can't get discouraged when one door closes or if times get tough. When I was working for Jim, he was a hard guy to work for. He was hard nosed. He reminded me of like a professional hockey coach or football coach. He was, he was hard nosed. He wasn't a guy that was going to sugarcoat anything. He wasn't going to be nice to you. He wanted the very best out of you every single day. And he wasn't there to be your friend. Now we did have a friendship on the side, but there was a lot of days where you'd go to bed with tears in your eyes thinking, man, this is like, I never imagined this would be this hard. Mm -hmm. And I always asked myself a question. It came up, it still comes up, it comes up every single day. I asked myself, how bad do you want it? And if, you know, I know the answer every time I ask myself that, but it drives me to try harder. Whether I'm got my skidoo stuck in a big snow drift here in Canada, and I just got to keep digging to get it out if I want to get home and not freeze to death. I ask myself that question, how bad do you want it? So for somebody young that's getting into the industry, if you want a TV show, if you want to be an outdoor writer, if you, if you just want to be a cameraman, but if you want to make a living in the wild, you have to put heart and soul into it and you'll get there. And, you know, don't get discouraged when times get tough. When you started working for Jim, how much was he paying you a day? He paid me a hundred dollars a day. That was the first deal. So we're you sitting in his truck one day. He said, I want to start a hunting TV show. Would you be my cameraman and editor? I'll pay you a hundred bucks a day. Now that's gross. That's way before deductions. And he also didn't tell me that I was going to be working about 36 hours a day and seven days a week. And if I wanted to talk to my girlfriend, he'd fire me. He was an now, when, I, when, I, when I started for Zinc, this is 25 years ago, he started me at 50 bucks a day when I was running camera. Yeah. Yeah. And it sucked. But... <laughs> Got me here. When you're a cameraman, you're like the rubber boots of the operation. It feels like, anyway. Yeah. But it's a way to get started, though, too. Yeah, like, I can complain all I want about how hard Jim was to work for. But when you look back at my photo albums, I traveled to 15 different countries. I hunted the biggest bucks in the world. I got, I I call it Jim Shock University. You know, I, I learned the ins and the outs of the business. I learned work ethic. There's so many things that I got from Jim and, and you know what? I don't even know if I could say we had a real big friendship when we were working together. And now that all the smoke's cleared and I don't work for him, him and I talk three times a week, we're closer friends than we've ever been. So yeah, I did. I got a friendship out of it too. And it's pretty cool stuff. How did that come about Cody, as far as getting to meet Jim Shockey? How did, how did all that evolve? Well, um, I was 19 years old. And I bought a, I saved up, I worked three jobs. I saved up, I bought a professional video camera and I was out filming the first year that my plan was to start my own hunting videos that I could sell in hunting magazines. And 
six weeks into that first hunting season filming for myself, trying to create some stories, uh, Jim Shockey was coming out to Saskatchewan. That's my home province where I live here in Canada. He was coming out to Saskatchewan to go whitetail hunting. And I had just filmed a 190 class whitetail buck. And I was sitting with another kid that was actually his second cousin. And Mr. Shockey got word that his second cousin was with a kid that filmed a great big buck and he wanted to see the footage. So it was just a whole bunch of accidental situations that brought him to, he wanted to see the footage that I captured of this 190 buck. I showed him the footage and he offered me a job for that fall to film him for 30 days. So my momentum shifted from me filming for Cody Robbins' first video, which may never have even been a video, to being Jim Shockey's cameraman for 30 days. After that 30 days, he went home and he was gone for a month. But with the month that I spent with him in a blind, I knew that his plan was to start a hunting TV show. And he actually called me in January. He gets me on the phone and he says, how are you with computers? And I, I never told him this, but I failed computer class in grade 10. I got a 47%. I dropped out of computer class. I never went to computer class in grade 11 and grade 12. You couldn't even drop it. It was mandatory, but I just never showed up. So I knew nothing about computers and I was a flunky because of it, because I didn't even get enough credits. I had to go back and upgrade my grade 12 to get grade 12. And everyone in school called me a grade 13 because I was there an extra year. But when Mr. Shockey asked me how I was with computers, I never even skipped a beat. And I said, I kick ass with computers. I'm a computer whiz. And he goes, do you want the job to be my full-time cameraman and editor? And I said, yes, I do. I want it more than anything. He says, perfect. I'm going to send you a whole bunch of equipment, a huge edit suite and all of my footage. And we need to start building the first shows right away. They need to be sent to the outdoor channel in three months. You have 90 days to produce the first shows. I hung up the phone. I went to my mom and dad. I lived with my parents. I was 19 or 20. I went upstairs and I started crying like a baby. I'm like, I just, I just lied to my childhood hero. I lied through my teeth. Now he's sending me everything he's got. He's sending me every ounce of footage he's ever filmed. He's sending me a new edit suite. And I lied to him. And my mom said, call him back. Tell him the truth. I'm like, my dad's like, you can't do that. My dad comes over to me, puts his arm around me. He's an old, gruff cowboy, like great guy, heart of gold. Puts his arm around me and says, how bad do you want this? And I said, more than anything. And he said, figure it out. You can, you can read manuals. There's a lot of things you can do. Get help from people that know computers. Figure it out and do it if you want it. So I, I lied to Jim. I never told him I lied. And I waited till the stuff got here and I went at it. So that was my start with Jim. Outstanding. A lot of influences in my life were coaches and shed, shed coaches football. So he and I talked a little bit about, you know, coaches with that hard, tough love that they do for you. And, and uh, that's the ones that I look back now at my age that I, that I got the most from. And so you had to have a ton of takeaways, I would think, from, from working, working with Jim. What are, what are some of the key things that you would say were some of the biggest things that you learned from him now looking back that kind of carries over into what you do? There's so many things that I got from Jim. And when I was young and in those situations, I thought of Jim as a real jerk sometimes. Like, you know, I just, I couldn't, couldn't believe the way he handled things. But as you get older and you look back on situations, you realize that he's a person that's going to achieve or accomplish the very most he can accomplish every single day of his life. And I, I am so grateful for those opportunities. And I realize that he was never a jerk. He was never, he was never like a, a bad person. He just demanded the absolute best out of you. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm 
I'm really good friends with a guy named Mike Babcock. He was the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, the coach of the uh, Detroit Red Wings. And just being friends with Mr. Babcock and working for Jim, I feel like they had the same ethic. You know, they're hard-nosed and they're, they're champions and they want to be surrounded by champions. And they're, they're people that get the absolute most out of a person. And I remember Jim, he would, we'd be driving in the truck after a huge scene. Like we would, we would capture a moment that I would be so proud of on camera. And all I wanted was praise from Jim. Like I wanted him to be like, Oh, you smoked it. You got the best footage I've ever seen. And I would play it over and I'd show him and I'd lean the camera over and show him while we're driving down the road. And Jim would look at it and be like, Oh, you know, you could have framed it a little bit different. Like, I can't believe you didn't frame it a little bit tighter. Or you can't, I can't. And I would lean over and I'd look out the window on my side of the truck. And I would think, what, like, what is his deal? And then he'd get on the phone with a guy with um, Greg Ritz from Thompson Center, or he'd get on the phone with somebody from Mossy Oak, or he'd get on the phone with a, a partner of the television show. And he would brag that footage up and say, I just watched the most spectacular scene you have ever seen in outdoor television. I would think, why can't he say that to me? But the next time that I was in a moment and I was filming, I would think about what he said and I would try and make a scene that I thought was perfect and I would try and make it better. And down the road, you look 10 years down the road and you look back, he made you improve every day that you were out there. And that's, it's huge. And it's something that I, that I'm very grateful for. And I'm grateful that he pushed me and I'm grateful he was never satisfied with what I did. And he never let me be satisfied because we all need to improve every single day of our lives and be the best version of ourselves. And that's what he taught me. So this day and age, most people that get hit like that just quit. They, they do. They can't take it. Yeah. Always, there, there's, I, yeah. I always, you know like, what? I always like the hard nosed guy. I'd rather like have somebody just wear me out than say, Hey, great job. You know, here's Absolutely. Yeah. None of, yeah. none of us can, can get there on pushing ourselves to our own limits because when it gets tough, you're just naturally, I don't care how hard you work, you're, you're, you're not going to be pushed as hard as someone else can push you. You need someone like that in your corner. And you need to have those days when you walk out of there that uh, you don't like that person. It's you're cursing them under your breath because they're getting done what needs to be done for you in the long run. It's just difficult at the time, but in the long run, it pays off. Absolutely, man. I have one quick story to tell you about. Uh, we're in Tanzania, Africa. We're hunting Cape Buffalo. And Jim and I and PH Mike fell. We're running after this herd of Buffalo and we're trying to get around them and they're running, but they're coming around a big ridge. We're running as hard as we can to get ahead of them to try and get a shot of this big old bull. And I trip and fall and twist my ankle. So I'm hurt in the moment. I can keep walking, but it swells up throughout the day. And then later in the afternoon, we get off to stock a Buffalo and I go to get off the truck and I can't walk. And Jim's like, are you kidding me? You can't walk. I'm like, I honestly can't walk. And he thought I was homesick. So he's like, you're just being homesick. You're just being a wimp. You're being weak. He goes, I don't want anybody on my team that isn't weak. So he made his son be the cameraman and he left me at the truck and I couldn't walk anyway. And I remember that night we had it out. We get back to back to camp and it's dark and we're walking back and I'm walking to my tent. And Jim, I felt like he gave me a cheap shot. Him and I had a passionate relationship. And I dropped the camera gear on the spot and I turned around and we were like an umpire and a hitter and we were forehead to forehead and we were yelling. And I remember, you know, I was, I had a lot of frustration, you know, you're away, you're gone for 200 days of the year and you're giving someone your heart and soul and he demands your heart and soul. 
And I remember after the argument we had, you know, him saying, oh, your ankle doesn't hurt that bad. And he said, my ankle did hurt that bad. I'm going to show it to you. It's like blown up like a balloon. You'd be crying like a baby if your ankle was like that. I remember going back to my tent that night and crying like a baby again, you know, just, just getting overwhelmed at times, you know, getting pushed that hard. But those are the, those are the, the days and the situations that mold you into who you are and make you the warrior that you need to be to, to make a living in this industry. So yeah. that's one little story that I remember okay. with Jim where we, yeah. we had it out. Now you mentioned your dad earlier. He played a big role in making a pivotal decision there of not being honest and telling him because, you know, you'll work through it, you'll get it done. And uh, did you did your dad hunt? Did that kind of get you? So go back a little bit earlier. Who, who kind of got you in started with hunting? No one in my family hunted. So my very best friend that I grew up with, his name is Shane Hunter. His family hunted, and I would go and stay at his house on weekends. We'd have sleepovers growing up from the time we were four years old until we were 12. And I would go trapping with his family. I would go deer hunting with his family, and I didn't like it. I wasn't a fan of hunting. I just wasn't my thing. But when I turned 12, my dad told me that I had to go and take a firearm safety course because there's always going to be guns in the house on a ranch with cattle and horses. And I took the firearm safety course, and something at that firearm safety course intrigued me, something about wildlife something about just being out there and I asked Shane's family if they would take me hunting now but with a tag you know where I could be the hunter and from the first day that I went hunting where I was an actual hunter I had a tag in my pocket I fell in love with it and I realized it's not going out and killing an animal there's so much more to hunt and I have never turned back I've honestly every minute every spare minute of my life since that day that that I took that firearm safety course I've been hunting and I've been lucky enough to make a living doing it and I'm grateful for it. Well, you guys know, you guys are hunters. You know what it's like, you know what drives you, you know what your passion is. It's we're living the greatest lives there is. I believe. I believe you're hundred percent. Now we're talking about my dad though. Yeah. We're talking about my dad. I I get long winded. He, no one in my family hunted. My dad's a cowboy. He's, you know, looked after huge amounts of cattle and big ranges his whole life. And, He's never, never been a hunter, and it was my my friend Shane that got me into it. But my grandmother, my dad's mother, she lived with me. My parents moved out to Waterton, to Waterton National Park. It's the north part of Glacier National Park in Montana, mm-hmm. and they started a candy store. Now I stayed at home and lived with my big brother from the time I was twelve till I was eighteen. So my brother was my guardian, but he was always gone working. My grandmother came out and lived with me, and I was a bow hunter, or I. I wasn't a bow hunter. I had a bow and arrow and I wanted to be a bow hunter. But in Saskatchewan, you have to have a guardian. If you're under 16 years old, you have to have a guardian that goes with you and is with you when you're hunting. My grandmother at the time, 75 years old, gets her hair permed once a week. She's a lady's lady. She's a, a city lady. She's she's not one to go hunting. She's never been hunting in her life. She would watch me in the backyard shooting my bow and arrow at a round bale and see how many arrows I would fling and then hear me talk about it at night how bad I wanted to go bow hunting. And she asked me a couple times, well, why can't you go bow hunting? And I said, well, I don't have a guardian. One day she said to me, I'll be your guardian. If you get me a cap and some camouflage, I'll take you hunting. And I took her. I, I gave her some camouflage. We went out and we sat in the in the bushes. I built blinds and I sat with my bow and arrow. And I actually shot my very first white-tailed deer with a bow and arrow with my grandmother sitting beside me. And she was, I think she was 76 or 77 years old Isn't that, that so? day. And it was one of the greatest days of my life. I fell in love with bow hunting that day. And my grandmother is honestly, she passed away this year. She was 101. Goodness. 
and she will always be my favorite person in the world. Yeah, she's, I bet so. she's a very selfless person who did things for others. You know, mm -hmm. she would hunting was not her thing. The, the first buck that I got, she walked up to him and she was crying her eyes out. And I, when I was 12, you don't realize why that person is crying and why they're yeah, upset. And yeah. now I know she was crying because she didn't want to see a deer get shot, mm -hmm. but it made me realize what she was willing to do for me so that I could follow my passion. Exactly. That's, 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 that's love. That's cool stuff. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. And, you know, again, look at your path. You take, like you take your dad out of there. You take your grandma from taking the time, and you're not doing what you're doing today. There's so many pieces of the puzzle that, gotta, that have to fall together. And, uh, and so many people have to support you and bring you up along the way. And for her to do that, uh, that's, that's an incredible story. I like hearing that. I like those kind of stories. Sorry to hear of her passing. And, uh, but to, to hear 101 has to be uh, – she lived a long, great life. And then to do that with you, that has to mean a lot to you. That will live on with you and your yeah. kids and – at, uh, for for several generations, I'm sure. When you're 101 and you pass away, it's truly a celebration. She lived a great life, and yep, lots of good memories with her too. So, yeah, hey, I want to go back up and shed hunt. I mean, I know we're fixing to talk about the world record. Mm -hmm. I, I've held the other one, the the uh, <clears throat> the one you just shot. The sheds off it. I almost had him. We had a little bet. I had him sweating pretty good. <laughs> and I, I mean, I was fixing to take him home with me. I thought. <laughs> There's a, let me, here, let me grab him. That's the most recent one there, Shed, that he's getting? Uh, yeah, I think. Um, Is that the number five? He's a giant. Um, you probably won't so, uh, this is uh, Sleepy. So it's, yeah. a buck, it's the buck that Shed was referring to. And my, my, my son now Goodness calls, every time we find a deer, he says he's looking for Sleepy. Wow. Oh, does wow, he? Wow. Now that's so your that's your most recent the, then, Cody. Is that right? That's your most recent buck. What's that? That's one of your most recent. Uh, actually, I shot a two hundred and two inch typical this year. This is two thousand nineteen buck. Yes. But uh, I had Dustin up looking for antlers, and we were looking for antlers off of Sleepy, and this is the two thousand eighteen right side off of Sleepy or left side off of Sleepy, Good. and the so other good. side is one hundred and twenty nine inches. I'm predicting, and it's still out there. And we can't find it. So, Shed, you need to get back up here and help me find it. <laughs> with, with a name like Shed, you think, yeah, he'd, he'd be a magnet drawn to it. Yeah, I, and yeah, you know what? He really let me down when he was up here. So, I don't know how he got that. <laughs> name, but. I found like the biggest ones I've, I, I've ever found in my life. <laughs> no wonder. It's different up there because, and, and I'm not going to, I don't want people knowing this, the, the total secret to it, but. In the states, you're kind of looking at you know kind of bedding areas and and where the whitetail feed is a lot different than what they feed on up there. So the first day and kind of probably the first day and a half, I, I tried to look at it like where whitetail feed. And I wasn't looking in you know what those mule deer feed on and down in in certain spots that it's just yeah. different. And once you figure that out and your mind gets right, like the, I think we shed hunted three days, I think it was maybe four, but. The last day, you crushed I, it. I crushed it. But previous <laughs> to that, I was like, I can't find one. And they're finding them everywhere. But it's you just kind of got to train yourself and, and your eye, and, and then you got to train your mind to it. Shed says well, you you got a I'm, heck of a collection of sheds. You got quite a few, Cody. I I'm in love with antlers, and I have like I it's crazy right now because my cameraman and I were here last night having a couple drinks because it's the end of hunting season. 
And after a couple beers, we got all the sheds out. So there's antlers laying everywhere right now. It'll take a day or two to put them all back. But yeah, if you can see my trophy room right now, there's antlers everywhere. It's it's chaos. I have I have probably 15 antlers that are well, not a hundred inches. There's probably seven or eight hundred inch antlers within arm's reach right now, just laying. There's like big that's ones. A, I'll show a, you guys a big. That's incredible. Laying right here. <laughs> and for people that's or that will be listening and not watching, that's tall, that's one side of an antler. That's not both. Oh, yeah. Look at this one. It's one of my favorites. That's unbelievable. One hundred and one or one hundred and two inches, and it's it's that's, one side. That's incredible. One what, side. Yeah. What what did uh, Sleepy score, Cody? And uh... Sleepy scored two hundred and sixty six inches and seven eighths the year that I got him. Now is he the all? What, what is he on the list? Numbers five, six. Uh, it's not official yet, but he's going to be right between number five and number eight somewhere all time. And, and then the the big one, the Velvet Buck. He was he was the potential world record for a while, but I think now he's number he would be number two. Now, are you going to put now that they let Velvet in? Are you going to put him in in the book? Yes, sir. I'm going to send. I'm going to send Sleepy's um, official score sheet and the 294's um, three-man panel scoring for Pope and Young. I'm going to send them both in in the same envelope. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. It'll, it'll, be, it'll change the top ten, so I'm, I'm really excited to be a part of it. Yeah. Tell, us, tell us about those two bucks. Uh, you can start with, each, with, with either one you want to, but tell us kind of about when you first saw well, them to when you, when you took them. So, um, 2010, my, a friend of mine gets drawn for mule deer. I take him hunting. We find a buck that's about 200 inches with a drop time. We find him in early October. We hunt the buck all the way through, all the way through a month of muzzleloader and two weeks of rifle season. We get six or seven opportunities at this deer. And it just seemed like there was like a, a magnetic field protecting this buck. You know what? textbook situations where I would make a stock and tell the guy, we have this deer today. He's, we have a 95% chance of taking him home. That happened half a dozen times. And every time he would just vanish, he'd just disappear. And I would come home. I feel sorry for myself. I'd tell my wife, why in the heck are we having such bad luck? Why can't we kill this buck? The next year we're driving down the road. It's July 18th. We're not scouting yet. It's early. We're driving down the road going to check our cattle. We just had a, a late branding, and I wanted to go check the bull calves and everybody that got branded and make sure they were okay. And we're driving down the road. The sun's setting. We don't have much time to get to the pasture. And Kelsey says, stop the truck. There's a huge buck. And I tell her, I'm like, Kelsey, we don't have time to be looking at stinking bucks right now. We're going to check the calves, and there's only 20 minutes of daylight left. She reaches over and grabs me by the neck like, like a jackfish and squeezes and yells, stop the truck. And I stopped the truck and I'm telling her, I'm saying, if this is like a white tailed doe that you're wasting my time on, I'm going to be ticked. And I turn and as I'm saying this, I'm going to be a white tailed doe. I look out the window and a 294 inch double drop tie and full velvet mule deer looks at us from a hundred yards away. And I'm like, wow, my eyes almost fell out of my head. We fell in love with the buck that day. I watched him for 45 days throughout the summer. We expected him to score 260 you know, like how do you know how yeah. can you predict that deer scores 294 inches i would sit and look through my vortex scope and i would stare at him and i'd write down numbers and every time i did i'd come up with 262 
day three of that season in 2011, I got the buck with my bow and arrow. And while we were standing around them in awe in the field, there's people showing up from everywhere. Like we're, we're, we're standing in a pasture. People must've been texting people within half an hour. There was 35 people standing around this deer trying to take pictures. And somebody said, what's the archery world record for non-typical mule deer? And somebody Googles it and says, Oh, it's the Kenneth plank buck shot in 1987 scored 274. And somebody said, well, this deer is going to score way more than 274. And we kind of look at him and we're like, well, like we'd never held a deer that caliber. So you don't know how to decide if he scores 274 or not. So my friend Bentley Coben says, I'm going to score him right now. I got a, I got a measuring tape and he's an official score. He's like, I got a measuring tape in my truck. I'm going to grab it. He runs and grabs it. We start writing down numbers, but it's a huge non-typical buck. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of points. We measure the buck and my, my lifelong best friend, Shane Hunter says, I'll go to the truck and add the numbers up. He goes to the truck. He comes back. He's like, uh, I got 294 inches. Everybody cracks up laughing and says, Oh, you're dyslexic. You failed math class. Take the score sheet away from him. Take the score sheet away. Bentley says, I'll go add up the numbers. He goes, he comes back. He's like, I got gross 294, net 288. And everybody just goes quiet. We're like, this is like, this is like 14 or 15 inches bigger than the all time world record for archery mule deer. So now I'm like, I'm, it was a big deal to me to be, to me to begin with, but I was now protecting this deer with my life. We drive him home. I hold him in the truck the whole way home. I sit in the back velvet. and actually when I heard that, I'm like, Holy cow. I'm like, this could be the deer of my lifetime. I'm life sizing him. My friend Shane, the dyslexic one that couldn't add up the numbers who could add up the numbers. He disappeared. We're all having drinks and celebrating and just so excited about the whole situation. Shane comes back two hours later and says, I life-sized your buck. I caped him all out. He's ready to go. And we have him life-sized actually in the room here. Beside me. But he, he grows 294, netted 288. I got him. Uh, Pope and Young said that he had to be uh, panel measured to be the new world record by three master measurers. We had, we organized the measuring. We waited 60 days and we got him measured on day 63 and he never shrunk at all. Really. He was, he netted or the way the, the three man panel measured him, he was 288 and one eighth inches net non-typical and Pope and young. Um, I knew at the time they made the comment that in order to make him the official world record, I'd have to strip the velvet. They didn't accept velvet at the time. And I just, I kept the score sheet. I put it in a, a drawer in my office said, I'm never, never stripping my buck. I fell in love with him in velvet. He was in velvet the day I snuck up to him. I don't know him any other way. I'm going to keep him that way. So I never, I never sent it away. And then in the last year, Pope and Young has changed their rules where they'll now accept velvet bucks. So I, I have the plan to send it away to them. There was a buck that was shot in the three thirties, I believe this year. So he wouldn't be number one now, but I think he would be number two. And I'm really excited about that, but I'm waiting to get Sleepy's official measurements. I'm going to send both of those bucks in in the same envelope to Pope and Young. So I'm excited about it. What uh, what would you say on that buck on the on the big one, the 294? How many days did you spend scouting him and specifically going out and looking for him from the time that uh, Kelsey stopped you in the in the truck to look at it from then till you killed him? How many days did you spend looking for him, scouting him? Forty-seven days. Forty-seven. And I. <laughs> 47 days and I it was September 1st that the season opened and I knew I knew that I 
that I was looking at the deer of my lifetime. And I'm a passionate deer hunter. I love giant bucks. And I went out there every morning. I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning because the days are so long in the summertime. 3 o'clock in the morning, there was a lot of days, like end of July. That's what time you have to get up to get there, to be there, to watch them at daybreak. And every evening, I think 41 of 47 days left in the summer, I was there with that buck morning and night or looking for him. And so many people, well, Kelsey, she said, what on earth is your deal? You've seen the buck. You know how big he is. And there was two reasons I kept going back and spending time with him. And one was simply to make sure that if anyone else bumped into him, I had my presence there. And no one else would get hooked and fall in love with him because they'd see me with him. Because he was out in public land. He was out where other people could have found him. And the other reason was he was a deer of my lifetime. And mm-hmm. the chance to watch a 294-inch buck with matching 15-inch drop tines with a 226-inch typical frame, the chance to watch a deer that size alive in your spotting scope, it's, it's, it doesn't come around. It, it's one of the rarest things out there. You guys know that. And I... Yeah. I just was so grateful for the opportunity that I just went and spent time with him and watched him because I enjoyed it so much. Do you attribute a lot of your success to the scouting and time that you put in? And do you typically put that kind of time in scouting during the summer? Is that your best time to kind of locate and monitor their home ranges, where they're going to be, that type of thing? Do you do you get a lot of intel during those summer months? I I'm I have a rule because I'm so nuts about big bucks. I'm so crazy about it that I don't even go scouting until August 1st because I fall hard. I find a big deer and I fall hard and I can't think, I can't, I can't think about like, I used to rodeo a lot. I can't think, I couldn't think about roping. I couldn't think about going on dates with my girlfriend or my wife. I couldn't think about being a dad. I couldn't, I just, just get drawn in or sucked into a giant buck. And so I, I made myself a rule August 1st. I don't go looking for deer until then. But then when August 1st hits, then I get serious and I try really hard and I get out there every morning, every evening and see what I can find. Tell us about what all took place there from the time you spied him and started making your move to the, to the end. It's, it's crazy. We, uh, my cameraman, his name was Chad Lang and he's, he's not, he's a cameraman. He was a cameraman for Jim Shockey. He's one of my very best lifelong friends and him and I share that passion together, hunting and filming. And he was filming for me and we were sneaking in on him. And we got 200 yards away from him. And he had a date with his girlfriend at the time to go to a fireworks show that evening. And he's like, Code, we got to back out, man. We can't, I, I got to get back. Like, if, if I don't make it back to these fireworks, this girl's going to dump me. I'm like, we're sneaking up on the biggest three you've ever seen in life. Like, you got to get a grip on life. And he's like, nah, and she's, he's like, he's, he was pretty mesmerized with this girl and he actually married her and has two little beautiful little girls with her now. And it's probably a good thing he went to those fireworks because he probably would have been married to her if he didn't. So he, we had to back out on that buck. We back out. I had to switch cameraman. My best friend Shane takes the camera and comes in with me and Kelsey and we sneak back in on him and get rid of Chad because he's a louse and we sneak back in and he's in flat ground and we couldn't get right in on him or we couldn't get a bead on him. So I convinced Kelsey, I needed Shane to film. Kelsey couldn't film. So Shane had to be in close with me. The only way we could possibly get eyes on him is if somebody climbed a little poplar tree. And now this looked like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. It's a (laughs) tiny little tree. It's old and rickety. And I look at my pretty little wife and I'm like, would you climb this tree for me and try and spot antlers out of this flat buck brush? And she's 
like I don't want to bash her, but she's the kind of girl that's a little bit weak-hearted when you need her to be tough, and <laughs> kind of have to. She's like a horse that you really got to keep spurring. And I'm like, would you climb this tree for me? And would you try and see if you can spot his antlers and guide us in with signals? And I, I, I knew for a fact she would say no. She looks at the tree, and she's like, yep, give me a boost. I'll climb up there. So I boost her up this tree. She climbs her up. The tree's like, I'm not saying she's a big gal. She's not. But the tree's like flexing, and she's up as high as she can get. And she's like, yep, I see him. Great buck. So we sneak in and she gives us signals and she's holding on to this tree for about four hours. And we sneak in on this buck 22 yards away. And the buck stands up and I've, I've shot a lot of big deer in my life. And when that buck stood up, I froze up like an ice cube. I, I, I couldn't bring myself to get committed to draw and shoot. I'm laying on my stomach on this cow path and I'm laying there and I'm looking at him and I'm, I'm shaking, like I'm shaking so bad. And Shane Hunter, who's normally a horrible cameraman, he's brutal. He gets—he's such a good hunter that he gets so into the moment. He's filming the buck and he's crushing and he's getting great footage. And he finally he pulls back and he's like, "Zoom back on my ass!" And he taps me on the butt. He's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "What?" He's like, "Shoot him!" And he's broadside at 18 yards. He's got his head in a bush, like perfect situation for a bow hunter. And I'm not even drawing my bow. I'm so froze up and just like vapor locked that because I'm so intimidated and had so much buck fever. He's like stand up and shoot the buck i'm like okay <laughs> pull my bow back stand up and i shoot him and he ran about 80 yards and he tipped over and it's it's a story that we produce it's called the king and i so i produced a dvd it's the entire two years hunting that buck it's picking up his sheds it's all the scenes that we're talking about and it's crazy stuff to even to see that deer on video is nothing like seeing seeing him in real life or holding his antlers in real life he is he is so crazy big shed when you were here you got to see him did you not yeah yeah i let he slept with me He's one night while you were <laughs> <laughs> did you spoon him like did you like lay him down in bed and spoon him? i just held him like that he said incredible <laughs> i mean you know you put your eyes on him he's one of the biggest deer you ever see all right the, the deer you have yeah, cool. there are all world class it's just an amazing place now, Cody, had you been like that before, as far as the nerves and uh, the shaking? Had you ever been that way before? Uh, maybe when I was, like, when I was twelve or fourteen, <laughs> you know, when my first first big moments learning to bow hunt, <laughs> or maybe when I was twenty years old getting charged by hippopotamuses with shocky. <laughs> but I had kind of conquered my my buck fever, and that deer just took me to a place right back to where that I was unfamiliar with, like just yeah. so many nerves. And I felt that those same nerves again this year, just like a week or 10 days ago, I shot my very first net Boone and Crockett whitetail and I was filming myself. It's crazy. That buck jumped the fence and come walking by me. And I was trying to shoot him with my Excalibur and film at the same time. And I, it's one more time where I got like crazy fever where I was, I was trying to film. I always try and film like two or three camera angles. And as the buck was walking in, I had I had a GoPro on the tripod of my big camera, and then I had my phone, and I had this idea that I was gonna I was gonna hold my Excalibur with one hand and aim, but I was also gonna look up and I was gonna use my free hand instead of having it on the forestock. I was gonna have it filming my black Eagleero right down the pipe, and get three camera angles. And this buck was halfway to me, and I just I was shaking so bad and I was like so overwhelmed. I was like, screw it. 
I, I'm filming with one camera and if that ain't enough, too bad. And I, I didn't turn the GoPro on. I never used my, my camera phone and I just made sure that the big camera was on record and that's the only thing I filmed. And I remember I was shaking so bad, 20 seconds in, it's really cold here in Saskatchewan in November. And I looked over my scope, looking at him, and I breathed all over my, my scope, the lens. And I looked back down to shoot him and my scope was completely fogged up. So now I'm trying to clean it off and I got it cleaned off and I got him shot and it was really exciting. But yeah, it was, it was one more time where I just completely got overwhelmed with really bad buck fever. You know, and there, there's really no way to reproduce that in practice situations. You know, game-like situations are totally different. And But is there anything you do from a practice standpoint uh, with your bow in the off-season when you're practicing to try to come close to uh, simulating those those type of moments? I think, I think one thing that's important is constant practice with your bow and arrow so that everything, if you do get overwhelmed with adrenaline, that stuff is still going to happen naturally. It's all mm-hmm. by default. Um, your anchor, all of that stuff. If you you don't practice very much and then you get overwhelmed with, with the fever, none of that stuff's going to happen for you. So the more you shoot, the more natural it's going to be. If you can't think through it, it's just going to happen for you. Yeah. And and then as far as conquering that adrenaline and that, that shaky, out-of-control feeling, I've screwed up enough in my career to know that you got to try your best to harness that because the outcome is going to be way better. And there's so much time after your shot where you can lose your marbles and freak out and have that adrenaline and that joy. So, and it's better to have that joy at some point than not have it at all. So I, I've, I've been able to harness it mostly, most of the time and keep it pretty down, down to a dull roar until, until after I get the shot. made. So how much practice time do you put in, uh, with your archer equipment during the during the off season or even during the season, I bring a in the off season when it's cold. I bring a block target in the basement, and even if I'm shooting my bow at five yards in my basement, I try and make a point. You know, shooting twenty arrows. You know, if not every day, every second day, and not even trying to hit a specific spot mm-hmm. on the target. Just pulling back, finding my anchor, finding everything comfortable, and just having a nice smooth release and just doing that once summer comes i'm back out there and i'm shooting lots of lots of arrows in the yard at different distances but i think it's important just to keep those muscles awake in your body you know like in your back there's a lot of muscles that you don't use for anything else that you use for archery i think it's it's important to keep them toned so it's it's a fun way to do things you put a target in your basement or somewhere in your house and you don't have to shoot far shoot shoot get two or three yards from the target as long as you're going to hit the target you're not going to take out your neighbor's dog or something shoot some arrows just keep everything awake and keep everything you know ready to rock for when the summer months come when you're shooting outside what what is your max distance do you reach out there to 100 and beyond you know like you see some people do is from longer distance to make the shorter distances a little little easier or how, how do you approach that I've, I've always enjoyed shooting out to 100 yards the last three or four years i probably haven't shot past 80 um i like to spend a lot of time between 60 and 80 because it makes 20 and 30 feel so much easier. So if you spend 90% of your time farther where your where your faults or your mistakes are going to, they're so amplified, they, they really make you hone your craft. And then when you shoot that many arrows between 60 and 80, and you're going to go out and sit in a whitetail blind at 30 yards, it just brings you that much more confidence. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I would shoot at a deer at 80 yards. 
I shoot at 80 yards to practice to, to amplify my mistakes so I could be a better bow hunter. But, you know, when I'm going hunting, I, I don't really intend on shooting anywhere past 60. Tell us a little about Sleepy. How did that, uh, how'd Sleepy come about? And when you first noticed him and procedures you took scouting-wise to close the distance on him? 2015, my wife, Kelsey, had a rifle draw tag. We were out looking for a buck for her with that special draw tag. A buck walked up on a hill. The night before, she got really mad at me for trying to tell her what deer to shoot. And she just, delaying in bed, she's like, you know what, this is my hunt. I know that you know mule deer, but she said, you may not think so, but I know mule deer too. And I I want this hunt to be my own. I wanna, I wanna make my own decisions. You can give me your advice if I ask for it, but otherwise, just be quiet. I'm like, okay. So I, we got into an intense situation that day and I saw a giant deer and I said, shoot that buck. And she couldn't judge it and she was tired and we've been running. It turns out it was a Boone and Crockett, typical mule deer and she passed it up. So I'm just kind of sticking up for myself right now. But so that night we had that talk. The next day we go out, we're sitting on the side of a hill. This buck trots up on a hill with a doe that's in heat and stops at 80 yards. He's heavy, he's non-typical. He's about 190 incher. She's looking at him and I'm, I'm biting my bottom lip right off my body. I'm like chewing it off my body. I'm like thinking, shoot this deer, shoot this deer. But I don't want to say it because she told me not to talk. So I'm sitting there and she says, what do you think? And I said, I don't know. It's totally up to you. She says, oh, I don't know. He looks young. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And I just, I can't wouldn't say. tell her. I'm, I thinking, can't really I'm, I'm thinking she's going to shoot this deer. Like, there's no way she's going to pass this deer up. I want her to shoot the deer. She didn't shoot it. It runs away. At 300 yards running away, she's like, I want to shoot that buck. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's way too flipping late now. You should have shot him before. It turns out that was sleepy at four years old. He was 190 inches. The next year, he had double throw patches, really pretty double throw patches. The next year he shows up, he's 220 inches. He went from 190 to 220. Now I find him in the summer and I fall completely madly crazy in love with this buck. And I want a chance at him. I missed him with my bow at 41 yards hunting him that fall. I had another opportunity where he came straight at me out of his bed. He walked straight at me. I was sitting in a little patch of kosher weeds and I had broken a little eight inch window through these kosher weeds for a shooting lane. Kind of like I built essentially a blind and there was just native grass between us and him. He gets up at 25 yards, he walks straight at me and walks right up and puts his head in the window that I pulled apart at like two and a half yards and stands there and eats buds off of the weeds that I'm hiding behind. A 220 inch deer, I'll, I'll grab the set. Um, <clears throat> A 220 inch non-typical mule deer at two yards. I remember staring at all these little ivory white burrs right here. I remember staring at these bases and these brow tines at two yards in the sleepy story. And I remember my heart pounding so hard, just rocking my body and how I was cowering. I was so ashamed to be that close. And I was looking at like the, the, the moisture in his eyes and like the dirt in his tear ducts that close. And then while he's eating and browsing at two yards and I'm like, I'm like got my hat pulled right down and I'm just like looking under the brim of my cap. He just pauses and you can see his eye just lock on my eye at two yards. And then he stretches his neck out and looks down at me and then just blows out of there. 
and it's one of the one of my favorite moments I've ever had with a giant mule deer buck. I can't imagine. And I I fell so hard for that deer in that moment, and I hunted that buck the rest of that fall. I gave it heart and soul, and I never got him. And then I found those sheds laying on top of each other, intertwined in March that next spring, and that story just kept compiling and compiling and compiling. It's a buck that I hunted for four years and I gave it heart and soul. I gave it everything I had for four years in a row. And the buck went from 190 when Kelsey could have shot him, he didn't have a name yet, to 220, to 241, to 261, to 266. The day I got him when he was nine and a half years old. And he he's not the biggest deer I've ever shot in my life, but I have a 294 inch buck, which I thought was a deer in my lifetime. If you get the chance to watch the sleepy story, this deer truly is the deer of my lifetime, no matter what. I could shoot a 400-incher, and there's, there will never be a deer that means as much to me as that buck. What time of year was that that you killed Sleepy? I killed him on October 3rd of 2019. It's uh, in Saskatchewan. It's right when the leaves are falling off the trees. We're starting to get frost each day. And September is made for archery. O- October, it's a muzzleloader season. You can continue hunting with archery if you want to, but everyone with muzzleloader tags are out there, and it's harder. It gets really hard. If you, not many guys still have their bows in October, and and that's when we got them. And it's it's a, a day I will never forget. Yeah, you, I think I texted you that day and was like, "Hey, have you killed Sleepy yet?" And I think you texted me back, "I just shot him." It's literally just yeah. like chance, but I'm almost positive I texted you on that day. I was like. Because yeah. I've been hitting you up about have you got him? You know, you seeing him? And you had you you were pretty quiet about it. And I'd be like, send me a picture. Uh, send me a picture. And then you said, I just shot. Him. <laughs> yeah, it's a it was a pretty special day. It was um, it I don't know. It's it was really cool. I kept it a secret the first year that I hunted him. I went public and we aired an episode on Sleepy, and then it created so much attention to that area. He lived on public land. The next year when he was 240, there was people everywhere, like everywhere. And I realized that I couldn't tell anybody anymore. And Shed, you were one of the, there was probably five or six people, you know, you Shed hunted with me, you tried helping me find those antlers. And so there's a few people that were in the know or in in the inner circle (laughs) and knew what was going on. But it was, and it drug out for four flipping years, which, I'm grateful that it did because it's really cool. It was a great, great experience, but it, it could have ended so many different ways. That deer living on public land, we could have hunted him three years and somebody else may have gotten him, which that would have been awesome for that person. But I would have cried like a baby, I'm sure. But are there cool. are there any parallels, Cody, that you see in hunting mature bucks that, uh, you know, whether it's your 294 or Sleepy, that you can, you can take things from that and put that to a deer maybe that you're hunting next year that will pay off? Or are they just, as a mature buck, just an independent personality of another one and uh, and it's 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 hard to learn anything from them that would translate over to another deer or are there some similarities that can help you be more successful as you go forward i i find that all bucks follow the same plan um there, there's bucks that it seems like they go through a stage in their life when they're five to seven years old where you can consider them to be untouchable and then it seems like 
they go from this untouchable, nocturnal, impossible stage. And I don't know if their teeth start going bad or what, but I feel like this is a rare thing too. Like how often do you get to hunt a buck that's seven or eight or nine years old? Mm -hmm. But I feel like bucks go through that impossible nocturnal stage. And then all of a sudden they go back into a stage where it's almost just like they've just kind of retired on overthinking things and they're just going to live their life and they give you more of a chance if that makes any sense yeah. and sleepy he was nine years old and he was the most intimidating impossible deer we, we would spend a month trying to find him and we knew within a mile and a half where to look but he just he wouldn't show himself in daylight like you you could go on glass and you could didn't matter what you tried if he's not willing to show himself in daylight you're not going to get the opportunity to hunt him and we would get one opportunity a year one or two opportunities and then as soon as you bumped him or educated him or something went wrong he was gone and you could keep trying the rest of the year but you weren't going to find him and you weren't you weren't even going to know he was still alive until you found a great big shed antler laying right there in february or march the next spring and then it would give you new hope but with all of that said too i'm kind of going against what i'm saying but sometimes people make animals out to be untouchable and the same with whitetail bucks you you paint this picture that they're an untouchable superhero and there's there's no way they're going to come by in daylight and there's no way that you're going to get a chance at them with your bow and arrow and that's not true either if if you have that mentality you're never going to get that opportunity you have to put in time on them and that's at the end of the day they're still just deer you know when when the rut hits a buck that you you consider to be impossible he's going to screw up and you're not going to know if he's going to screw up if you're not out there. So you have to keep a positive attitude and you have to be out there every day that you can. And you can't put him in the untouchable category because if you want him, you got to be trying for him. And it, it's crazy how you can label a buck as such. And then you'll be out there one day sitting in your tree stand and he'll come walking by just like every other deer does every other day. And he'll walk right under your stand and he'll give you a perfect opportunity. And that proves you wrong and tells you that you can't you can't paint that picture that they're not possible so and that's what i've learned so many times you know you hunt a buck that consumes you that you you just crave them so bad and you want that opportunity and you sit in bed at night and be like i'm just wasting my time i'm never going to see that deer what's the point in waking up when my alarm goes off at 3 30 in the morning why don't i just sleep in tomorrow i've been proven wrong so many times just like you guys probably have You, you never know when it's going to happen and you, you can't give up and you got to stay positive and you got to stay focused and you got to believe that's one thing that Shockey taught me every time we'd be hunting whether we were in iran on the top of a mountain and we had really gross food to eat and we weren't seeing any game and we were in a snowstorm or whether we were sitting at home hunting deer hunting a nocturnal buck that we had never gotten a daylight photo of he would always live by you gotta believe you gotta believe it's gonna happen any minute and you gotta be there to live it and it happens it you all the huge moments in my trophy room or your trophy rooms that's those are moments that you probably you know on a giant deer that you figured maybe wouldn't happen and they do so you know i've heard shed refer to you and i've I've heard others say it as well is that to consider you the top expert when it comes to to hunting uh monster mature uh mule deer what what can you say to that and what what is it that makes you mentioned in that that context that Probably some of the things that you just mentioned, but is there is there anything else that uh, puts you in that category of being, if not the, definitely one of the top mule deer experts? 
I would say the only thing that puts me in that category or that league, or I'm very humbled to hear that, but it's where I live and it's the opportunities that I have. It's the genetics up here. It's the way the government manages the mule deer. I'm not a superhero. I, I hunt just as hard as you do. I hunt just as hard as shed does. It's if there's, you guys aren't going to shoot 290 inch mule deer if they don't live where you hunt and they live where I hunt. And I'm very lucky in that way. I, I put the time in and I work really hard at it, but a lot of it is time. It's not necessarily, it's not necessarily talent. It's, it's time and effort, you know, it's just being out there and I'm very lucky to live where I do. And that's what I would blame it on. If, if I had to put it somewhere, I'm passionate about it, but I'm lucky. I, I wish I could take like shed and I've had this conversation so many times. I would love to take shed hunting mule deer here. Like I, I don't need to shoot another 200 plus inch buck and shed would love to shoot a 200 plus inch buck. I would love to shoot all day. I need to shoot. I, I would never say I don't need to shoot one. <laughs> well, if you guys, if you guys watch the live to hunt show, you'll see that I hunt three episodes of the year and I hunt nine episodes of the year helping someone else, whether it's someone down the road, like my neighbor or a kid or a lady. I, I absolutely love, like if someone has a goal to shoot a 200 inch mule deer and it's their passion and they're like, they're a good person and they, and they love it. I, I love that stuff. I love taking somebody out. Last year I found a, a 200, 220 class inch buck and wider than this whole trophy, like the, the biggest deer you have ever seen. And we call him Curvy. And I was hunting Sleepy at the time. And Sleepy, I'd watch them walk side by side different days. And Curvy crushed Sleepy. Like, they were both standing on a hill and you had a rifle in your hands. You'd never even consider Sleepy. You'd shoot Curvy. But with the story that I had with Sleepy and the history that I had, I wanted Sleepy. And I passed up Curvy eight times. I had him bedded at his antlers sticking up out of the brush. And he is the biggest thing you have ever seen. I'll have to get you guys a photo so you can share of Curvy. And there was a lady... She was actually the banker that gave me my loan to start Live to Hunt, to start my business. And when you go to a bank and you say, you want to start a hunting TV show, there's not a banker out there. They're not, they're not going to give you a next. loan. Yeah, they, they kick your butt out the door. And this lady, she was a fan of Jim Shockey's Hung Adventure. She knew who I was. She was in the same community. I wouldn't say we were close friends. We weren't close friends at all, but we knew who each other was. She looked at me and said, I'm going to give you this loan. My auditors would never approve it. Our board would never approve it, but I believe in you. you I get emotional because it changed my life. Yeah. Do you, do you swear to me? You will not let me down. I said, I will, I will, I will not let you down. She gave me that loan. So just thinking things coming back full circle. I find this curvy buck. I call this lady up. I say, do you want to shoot a giant mule deer? She's like, who doesn't want to shoot a giant mule deer? I take this lady out and we get Kirby. And it, it's a story that we aired last year on Mossy Oaks Live to Hunt. And it it's it it will smoke you emotionally, like giant buck wise, everything. It's an awesome story. And I I do, I like I crave the chance to take other people hunting big bucks that appreciate it. You know, Shed, I, I knew you and I both should have been a loan officer in Saskatchewan. One. That, that should have it was our it was our dream. We should have done it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and buy an acre and become a resident for a year so I can kill a big job, you know, there. 
Well, Cody, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate your answer there, you know. But that's still a humble answer. You're not the only one that lives in Saskatchewan, you know. So there's other people. So you do have to be where the big deer are. There's no question. But you're not the only resident of Saskatchewan. So other people could be in that vein, and you're putting it because you do put that time in, that effort in, and that never going to quit type attitude. And that's that's the difference maker. Can you tell us a little about your hunting season today? Uh, can you give us some kind of how this season went for you? Did you have a good one overall? And we did. We, you know, we were sitting on the couch last night looking at sheds, my cameraman and I, and and uh, his fiance was here too, and we were laughing and joking. There's so many years where hunting season wraps up, and we're like we're crushed. We're like a we're like a football team that just won the Super Bowl. You know, we're we're on the couch, we're throwing each other's ice packs back and forth. We got bandages everywhere. We maybe feel like we hoisted the trophy, but we're beat up because of it. You know, we paid the price. And this year, we're sitting on the couch. There's no ice packs. There's ice. I made the comment. I'm like, going to baseball. I'm like, I feel like we didn't even go to a game seven. Like, I feel like we won every series in game in four games or five games. It, it, you know, it wasn't that we accomplished anything huge this year, but all of the stories that we captured are kick ass. Like they're they feel good. They have the elements. There's either family, giant buck, humor, wicked storyline. And we can and when my my cameraman and I go through our episodes before we send them away to the network, we we make like a template. We write a little, you know, a couple paragraphs of what it's going to be about. We try and make an outline when we edit them what the story is going to look like, and and then we rate them between one and ten. And we we try and be hard on it. You know, it's not very often we have a nine out of ten, and it's I think we've had two ten out of tens in Live to Hunt history. And this year we went through all the shows last night, and we had. I think two shows of 13 were below nine. And I think we had two shows just in one season that were 10. They were like all nine, nine and a half, and a couple tens. And just a lot, that all comes from just the scene. You know, if, if you're sneaking up on a big old buck and he gets up, and instead of just giving you a marginal little window through the brush, he stood up and he walked straight at us and he walked right up to us and he lip curled and he did something crazy and gave us a great chance. But in almost every one of the scenes this year, seemed like we were handed a gift or, or something very lucky and we had we had a really good year really fun and those are the years that are enjoyable I, you know when you're when hunting is the way you provide for your family and you're out there and you go a month and you don't capture anything on camera and you fail on four hunts or you fly to texas or you fly to the northwest territories and you fail three hunts in a row it catches up to you like you get just like being on a professional sports team you know if you go into a losing slump it's not fun. You're like, you get, you get beat up mentally, you get down and it's hard to get out of that slump. A lot of it's momentum. And this year it didn't matter what we did, just things felt smooth. And it seems like we had luck on our side almost every day. So it was, it was a fun year. Now, are you completely done hunting or is there some other States that you may go to or another country you're going to, or is it just all, are you done completely right now? I, I am pumped. We're going to old Mexico on December 28th. Now, my wife is not pumped. She can't believe that I'm going there and I'm going to have to come back and I'm going to have to quarantine. But uh, going hunting with Spencer Bratt with um, Old Mexico Hunts, and he has huge mule deer. And he's been inviting me down for a couple of years. And this is the first time that I'm going and I'm, I'm revved. It's, we didn't get to go to South Texas this year to where we normally go. We didn't get to go to the Yukon. We didn't get to go to, on a lot of the hunts that we go on. And now that the season's over, I just made a plan that I know I'm going to have to quarantine 
and be really careful with traveling. But um, with all the regulations, we can still go if you're willing to put in those quarantining days and everything. So, so I'm going and I'm pumped about it. We have a place we go down there a couple times a year and fish, and we just haven't been able to go this year. So oh yeah, yeah. Fishing. Is there is there regulations that you can't go to Mexico? I don't know if it's open or not now. That now there was, I think the U.S. had the Mexican and the Canadian border shut down. Right. We weren't, but I think that ended in middle or end of October. But I haven't heard anything else. But work wise, we've we've shut all travel down. Yeah, absolutely necessary. So we've pretty much canceled all the hunts, everything else. I mean, we'll still hunt around here a bunch. We've got Alabama, Mississippi till January thirty first. So. Those guys will shoot a bunch of stuff around here, but everything else work-related is shut down. Cody, what's a typical year for you as far as where you travel, where you go? What 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 hunts do you typically try to get in uh, from countries, places in the U.S. to uh, species, those type of things? Um, our season usually starts. We go to uh, Shane Palmer's Saddle Axe Outfitters in British Columbia, and we hunt archery elk. And that's a hunt that I look so forward to every year. It's a, and it's, it's not one of those elk hunts where you go and you're going to shoot a 340 inch bull in the first couple of days, you know, you're not going to, and it's a grind. Like it, but it's, I think I go there 50% for the guy that I'm hunting with. Shane Palmer is one of my best friends. And, and also for the challenge, it's you're back in the mountains, you're on horseback and it's an adventure I really look forward to. From there, we usually go to the Yukon to hunt Alaskan Yukon moose with Joel Wilkinson's Caesar Lake Outfitters. And in between those hunts in September, we try and do our archery mule deer here in Saskatchewan, which is, you know, a big draw for our show. It's, it's you know, kind of our bread and butter episodes. And then October, November, um, there's a lot of whitetail hunting, a lot of draw mule deer hunting. Somewhere in there each year, we get a chance or we, we make time to go down to Phil Hunter's uh, Charco Morano Ranch in South Texas. And they've turned into great friends of ours, just kind of like a, a ritual that we look forward to each year. And then I haven't so far, you know, I've, I traveled all over the world with Jim and I've tried to keep our show focused on trophy class, North American, big game, elk, moose, whitetails, mule deer, sheep. But I, I'm getting more and more drawn to particular animals overseas. I really want to go in the next two years. I want to go to Turkey to hunt bizarre Ibex. And it's, it's a hunt that I did with Jim in 2000 and we went to Turkey in 2005 or 2006. And it was just the style of hunting, the terrain and the animals, the bizarre Ibex in the rut, I think are some of the, it's one of the coolest hunting experiences that I've ever taken in. So I want to go back there someday. Just a couple of little things like that. I'm not saying I'm going to turn into an international hunter, but probably one or two hunts a year. There's a couple of species that I'd like to try for. You have got to hunt in some bitter cold temperatures at times, I would think. Uh, yes, sir. How do you prepare for that? What what type of clothing? I'm, I assume you have several layers upon layers. But what, what do your temperatures get sometimes at the, at the most brutal? And then what do you do from a clothing standpoint to offset some of that? We spend our November and December when we're hunting whitetails at home here in Saskatchewan. Um, we're hunting. There's a lot of days where you're hunting mighty, minus 40 degrees Celsius, which celsius and fahrenheit meet at minus 37 so you guys know how cold that is yeah. and it, you know when you're bow hunting you can't be piled up with a whole bunch of clothes so i wear nomad and then i also have 
a heater bodysuit. And that heater bodysuit is like essentially like a big sleeping bag. And you pull it, I get one that's a little bit too big for me. And I pull it up over me and you can zip it up. It has a quiet zipper. So I can reach out when a deer walks in and I need to film, I can just slip an arm out of this big heater bodysuit. And I just have my one arm out and I film and I keep most of my body heat inside. And then when a big buck walks in that I want to get a shot at with my bow, I reach out, I film, it falls off of my shoulders. So now I'm down to clothing that you would wear, you know, just in maybe cold weather, but not extremely cold weather. But at least it's not as bulky that I can't shoot my bow. So I come out of my heater bodysuit and then I'm, I'm good to go. And it's, you know, we get temperatures, even in a heater bodysuit, it's a challenge. You got to, like we do, I remember sitting with Jim and sitting in a blind for 10 hours a day in minus 30 or minus 40 degrees. And there was one day I'm shivering and my nose is running and I'm like shaking out of control. And he's like, what's your problem? I'm cold. What's your problem? He said, well, there's no reason to be cold. You're just being lazy. If you're sitting here, like as long as you have some, some warm clothes on, if you're sitting here and you do like muscle tensions and you like tense your muscles, like tight, loose, tight, loose, tight, loose, and count to 60 and do those. If you're not lazy about it, there's no reason to ever get cold. Like he had the answers to everything. (laughs) (laughs) My nose is running right now and I'm cold. So yeah, you can't tell me I'm not cold. We'll run, some, we'll run some laps around the blind. Yeah. Yeah. Jump out and chase all the deer away and run some laps. But he, like, there's no matter what, in minus 40, you're going to be cold. But when we sit in those heater bodysuits, I can't even imagine going back to sitting without them. You know, they're so warm and cozy, and you pull them up over top of you and they trap your body heat. They're, they're a lifesaver for us in Saskatchewan. Shit, I've heard you mention them a lot. You, you've used those as well, haven't you? The, the heater bodysuit? In uh, Kansas, a couple times when it gets you know, 10 degrees, you know, Warm. nothing like Cody's in. <laughs> yeah. It didn't get minus 40 in Mississippi, does it? No. Chad, um, you need to come up and hunt in Canada with us. Just say when. <laughs> so this is, this is kind of like under the radar right now, but I guess if we're on a podcast, it's kind of over the radar. But um, Kelsey and I are just, it looks like just in the last week we're getting involved. Um, we're going to be whitetail outfitters. So I'll be, I'll be there. This I'll be there somebody. I'll be there this fall. Okay. Shed, don't look in your back seat or your truck bed because I'm going to be in one of the two, whichever, whatever you're driving. <laughs> just just keep focused straight ahead. That's time to come. Now, honestly, I have been, I've hunted Canada three different times for whitetail. I have sat daylight till dark, 18 days. Those hunts were all six-day hunts and never saw deer over 140. And I've and I've not not shot one. I've done it three times, and I'm so I, the last time I went was up there where Pat and Nicole go, yep. and I've been there twice, and then been to Grants, the other place, once. And I and after the last time I went, I'm like I won't do it again. Yeah, you come to me if you come. I come if I'm going to go to Canada. I'm going to shoot something 170 or better, more than likely one one 160 or better. And so I'm going to wait on something like that. Like it was when I went to Grants the first time, it was so cold. After the second day, there was 21 guys in camp. I was the only one that didn't kill, had shot. Everybody else had killed because it was so cold they couldn't sit there. And I'm like, I didn't, and I bet you the big, well, Pat and Nicole, of course, killed two good ones, but everything else was probably the biggest deer was 120 inches. Yep. They just whacked, they were like, and they'd all come in and say, I just couldn't sit in the cold anymore. That's That's the most common thing coming to Canada. Yeah, I sent six straight days, froze, 
But I mean, I was there for one thing. Yeah. Just never saw. Your whitetail outfitting is going to start next fall. Well, we're we just it's like it's very very fresh right now, but we're we're just getting involved in buying an area with a, a friend, mm-hmm. and that's what it looks like. It's it's still playing out right now, but we should be whitetail outfitters by next fall or leading up to next fall. Now, will it be bow or gun or both or whatever the whatever the client wants to use. Yeah. But yeah, it's um, it's a great area. There's big deer. And that's what it goes back to what you're saying, Shed, that so many people that come to Canada aren't used to the cold temperatures and they, they settle and shoot a lesser deer instead of putting in time because they're cold. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Is most of that during the, during that cold, cold time is most of that hunting out of a blind or is there some tree stand hunting still done during that time? Uh, like on request with a lot of outfitters, you can hunt from a tree stand, but just because they're trying to get you out of the wind and out of the, like out of the elements as much as possible. A lot of it is ground blind or box blind hunting, you know, smaller windows trying, mm-hmm. cause if you're up in a tree, there's, there's some bow hunters. I know if any outfitter that I know, they have a couple tree stands because some bow hunters, they like it a little better to have that elevation and to have the view. But I bet you after day one or day two, they're thinking about those box blinds. Yeah, bet. They can, they convert pretty quickly. I bet. Yes. <laughs> Put the heater in and keep me warm. <laughs> yep. What what type of bucks do you do you have on this property that you you kind of know that generally are there? There's they're black antlered, gnarly, lots of character, and the potential of seeing 180 inch deer is there. But not everybody's going to get 180 inch deer. There's there's bucks. As this average guy is going to shoot 140 inch deer. And that may be based on them not having the patience, and it may be based on that might be the biggest deer that they see. Um, Has this place been hunted? Is it was it an outfitter before you're looking at, at buying that area? It hasn't. It hasn't been properly outfitted and hunted in 15 years. And nobody was probably there this year. No, there, there's been no there's been no activity there for like we're talking a huge area, huge area. Is there wolves up there? Yeah, but there's trappers. Yeah. But we have 66 allocations per year, and there's been like I think two guys going and hunting there each year. They've been they've been leasing a tag off of the outfitter and kind of doing a do-it-yourself type hunt. There's been two guys in an area where there's 66 allocations, and now and that's been for 15 years. So now now we're taking over. So yes, I will be there. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious as a heart attack yeah especially the first year yeah it's gonna be I'm good it's gonna be really really good and this is like five days old right now so yeah and we're not gonna tell nobody no uh, but i'm in it just put me a spot in and you gotta, i don't know you, what your schedule you, is hey, maybe you got a client in me it's it's it was done when you first mentioned it for for it all <laughs> came out of your mouth <laughs> we're already booked holy That's cow right. this is awesome this is great Hey, what's the, what's the future got to hold for uh, Live to Hunt television series? And, and of course, you mentioned a little there with, with the outfitting, but what's the future hold for Cody and Kelsey Robbins? You know what? I, I can't really say that there's a specific plan other than I absolutely love the life that I'm living, and I just want to keep living it. And I, <laughs> as long as I can pay my bills and continue to have good relationships with our partners, our sponsors, and provide for them and provide for my kids. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. And I, I don't really, 
I've had people ask me, well, how long are you going to do the show or how, what's, what's the business plan? And I, I would hope to do it until I'm, until I'm old and gray, which that's, that's not far away. That's actually, <laughs> Oh, it's knocking on the door right now. But, um, I love what I do. And I, you know, I, I know with the entertainment business right now, I think I'm hoping that we stay on television. I know that we're going to have more of a digital presence. We, uh, we created a film this year called the sleepy story and it's about hunting sleepy for four years and we're going to release it. We don't know how or where we have it made and we're really excited about that. And that has kind of motivated us to start something new. This wasn't intentional, but um, just this year I realized I had going into our whitetail season, I had eight bucks in a row over 160 on public land, eight whitetail bucks that I had filmed myself, sitting by myself. And we, so I kind of felt some momentum or some pressure to get a ninth buck. And I went out and by November 20th, I still hadn't found a deer big enough that would be 160 plus on public land. And by November 23rd of my birthday, we found one. By November 26th, I got them. And now I have nine. So with that momentum and just absorbing all of that, now I want to make it 10. So I want to, we want to produce now the next film that we want to release digitally, we're going to release it this year before the 10th one, but we want to show the journey shooting 10, 160 class plus whitetails on public land by one person. And then we're going to release that as kind of the 2021 film. And then hopefully we can add to that with the, the 10th buck the following year or, but in, in 2022, we'll hopefully have a new idea for another film. So we're trying to release like a, like a two hour movie that's a, that's a digital platform specific release for each year coming up and then continue doing television or wherever that may go, but telling those 13 stories each year, wherever the platform may be as television evolves or wherever it goes in the next so many years. Great. Outstanding. And also in addition to that, getting shed and I both on 180 inch bugs. So we appreciate that. I was just going to say yeah. that's the 2000. 21 movie. That's the yeah. <laughs> It's called <laughs> the shed. Doctor. <laughs> That's right. Shed and the doctor. Yeah. One eighty. Doctor Deuce Saskatchewan. Hundred eighty. Shed at the doctor. One eighty. Robbins. That's right. Yeah. You got any final questions for Cody? I you know I I, I don't. Um, I watched the the sleepy film the other day and my my son watched it so every buck that. He now finds that he's like, does that got potential dad? That could be the next sleepy. I'm like, we're in Mississippi. There is no sleepies here. <laughs> Tell me what you thought, Chad. Did you like it? Yeah, it was really good. I did. It it's it's hard for me to sit down anymore and watch any hunting shows, videos, because it's a lot of the same stuff. And I find myself, even if like we're watching a, a Mossio Go uh, video here. I find myself within like two minutes reaching up to fast forward, get to the end. And I never found myself doing that. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good, really put together. Uh, there's no crying and hunting, though. <laughs> <laughs> hey, some, crying and hunting there. Some, sometimes there is. Sometimes there is. But it was, I thought it was, you, you really did a good job with it. I thought it was really good. Thank you. I, I like it. So. Awesome. Cody, you mind if I ask you just a few short little questions and just be a one or two answer type question deal? Sure. Uh, what's the one thing you look forward to the most as it relates to the upcoming deer seasons? 
Um, summertime scouting, finding a new buck, or checking stealth cams and finding a new buck. I love that stuff. How many cameras do you put out years time? Probably between 30 and 40. If you could suggest any guest for Shed Now, who would, you, who would your choice be? Who would you want to hear from? I'm a big fan of Fred Eichler. He's a fun guy. I'm sure you guys have thought of him. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of cool people out there. I, in the hunting world, there's lots of cool folks that I've bumped into. If I had to pick one, I'd say Fred Eichler. Okay. What makes you the proudest? Uh, probably my kids, my family and my kids. How many, how many children do you have? Two little girls, Berkeley and Bowie. How old are they? They're six and three. Yeah, and it's it's crazy the little things that they can do and they can make you feel way more proud than anything in the world. Something yeah. as simple as potty training or saying yeah. a word or just, yeah, it's being a dad's pretty awesome. It's a feeling you can't know unless you're there in it. You know, it's, it, it is something yes, else, the smallest of things. Um, what's one yep. thing in your, your hunting arsenal that you can't do without? Um, range finders, huge. I don't know how people did it before, before we had range finders back in the day. That's, that's big. That can change everything. When you think about deer hunting success, mule, mule deer or whitetail, either one, who's the first person that comes to your mind? Larry D. Jones. Who is that? Well, when I was a kid, uh, Larry D. Jones made spot and, how to spot and stock mule deer videos. Okay. And I, I wore those tapes out because <laughs> I wanted to be a spot and stock mule deer guy. And I, yeah, I looked up to that guy lots. You wanted to be Larry D. Jones and now you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you could only have three songs on your musical playlist, what they gotta would, be good. And this is Shed's favorite question. What would they be? Three songs. ACDC Thunderstruck. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> uh, ACDC Thunderstruck. Shed wants to cry right now, she and Shed wants me. to tell you he loves you right now. Come on, does, does he like Thunderstruck? That's his yes. number. That's his number one. Number one. Yeah. She keeps me up by. Nickelback, you just killed me. And, <laughs> do you do you like Nickelback? No, no, they're all right. <laughs> okay. And uh, oh, to the, other. the new new Chris Stapleton, um, you should probably leave. That's my third one. Yeah. I haven't heard that's, that. One. That's a good one. You won a lot of points there with Shed. Anything you ever need from He's Shed? Already got plenty of points. But anything you ever need from Shed's automatic. It's done now. No matter no matter what it is. <laughs> Shed, Shed, here's the deal. You get your butt up here. Let's go smoke a 180-inch black antler buck. <laughs> jump in the truck and crank Thunderstruck. Oh, we're going to. We might play it. That's the way the deer's walking out. We put the headphones in where the deer can't hear it. We might start playing That's that. Right. <laughs> I, I live by it. I, I live by that song. That needs to be on one of your episodes as you're, as you're going in for your stall. Yep. Uh, oh, yeah. We've tried to find ways where we could get ACDC on the show, but I feel like <laughs> we would get blocked. But, <laughs> Uh, what's something unique about you that people may not know? Uh, when I'm driving my truck and I set the cruise, it always has to be on an even number. I'm very superstitious. Okay. What if it's if it's on an odd number? I have to click the button and speed it up or slow it down. It can't be on an odd number. What's your favorite thing that, to do uh, when you're not hunting? Jeez. Uh, Scouting. <laughs> I know the answer. Uh, checking cows. Can, checking cows. I I raise Texas Longhorn cattle. And they, they are my, honestly, 99% of the time, I will admit that hunting is like work to me now. 
Like, I love it. Like, that sounds crazy. I love hunting. But cows are my therapy. Cows are like my getaway from everything now. I go out there and check my cows and go tag calves and do whatever, and that's like my happy place, which I don't think cows should be your <laughs> your passion happy place, but it is for me. So. And you grew up on a cattle farm or cattle ranch, basically, didn't it's, you? So it's it's in in your blood. and I bet that is yeah, good therapy. Shed, shed it, does what, it too. It stresses me out because cattle don't make me any money, or they, it doesn't feel like they do. It takes <laughs> way more time. They're getting out. Fences broke. But just a, like two months ago, I was riding my horse down a fence line in the black dark, riding home in hunting season when I was supposed to be hunting a big buck. And I'm out there doing something with cows. And I talked out loud to myself. I said, like I've always contemplated selling my cows, getting out of cows, focusing on my hunting because it's doing well right now. And I just said out loud, it's, I obviously love this and I, there's no way I can ever get rid of it. And it's always going to be a part of me. So I'm going to accept it right now. Yeah. And I, I love cows. I love ranching. I love riding a horse. I love roping. So it's always going to be there. Well, Cody, we appreciate you taking some time to spend with us today and shit. I don't know if I told you this earlier. I may have texted to you, but I don't think you was on here when Cody and I was talking, but I've been to Canada once, which was Waterton, Alberta. Probably there for three or four hours. I go into this candy shop, get something to drink. On the back side of it, they had kind of a room around on the porch, room selling some camouflage, and I uh, got talking to a lady there, and, I'm, and I told her, I'm not quite sure how how his name come up, but maybe I think when she told me her name was Carol Robbins, I said, well, I, I watched a, you know, why well, I would say that, like, you know, like Canada's only 10 people or something, like I'd even be... You know, in, yeah. in, in a ballpark. I'm like, I, I listened, I watch a guy, guy named Robbins on TV. His name's Cody Robbins. She's, well, that's my son. You know, so the the, the world is small. But met his mother uh, there in my, only two or three hours that I've that I have ever been in, in Canada. So, Cody, tell your mother hello. I'm sure she remembers. It's probably something that made an impact on her. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'll bring it up with her. You know what? I think that's really cool. She, she's, uh, she's passionate about her candy store, as I am about hunting. So, and she likes, and she's pretty proud of me too. So I'm sure she was excited to talk about me. She, she is, no doubt about it, as, as, as she should be. So thank you for taking time to spend with us today. We appreciate you being here. She had any final words of wisdom from you, sir? Well, I'm just counting the days down to when I go up there now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thank you very much. I've enjoyed today, and I enjoy other people that have the same passions. And I'm very grateful that you included me. It's really cool. I love telling my story. So thank you. Th- thank you, Cody. Stay safe and healthy up that way, you and your family, and uh, hopefully the borders get back open where folks can get back hunting and putting some dollars back in some outfitters that, that, that desperately need it. I, but I'm, I'm willing to help out that economy too and, and go into the Robbins uh, Whitetail Outfitters or whatever whatever you call it. So We're looking forward to it, Joby, and I'll, we'll keep you posted. Hey. And uh, like all the best to you guys too. We wish you, you guys all the best and hope everybody stays healthy. Thanks. Take care, Cody. You too, brother. Thank you for spending time today with Shed and I and our guest, Cody Robbins of Live to Hunt. Please check him out on social media, YouTube, his website at livetohunt.com, and with his outdoor channel television show, Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey. Please assist us by liking and rating today's episode and also by subscribing to the Foshi Creek Podcast. We are not a sponsored podcast, so the only way we are able to reach a broader audience is by word of mouth and the number of subscriptions, likes, and positive ratings that we receive. Please share our content on your social media platforms and with all your hunting friends. Thank you again for listening, and as always, we learned everything we knew down on Foshi Creek.